You're listening to Fuller Curated, a podcast of the best conversations happening at Fuller. this justice is the maintenance of social relationships that keep life viable and human and injustice is the practice of social relationships that make life not viable and not human so what I want to do in these minutes is talk with you about two modes of justice in the Old Testament, uh, and uh, so this is basically an exercise uh, about how to read the Bible and my proposal for how to read the Bible. I want to start with the justice that comes out of Zion, that comes out of Jerusalem where the royal elites and the power structure lived, and the liturgy was the liturgy of the Jerusalem temple. They had a certain brand of justice. Scholars have identified, as you may know, the enthronement psalms of Psalm 93, 96, 97, 98, and 99. Those are all psalms that use the phrase, Yahweh is king. So listen to this from the liturgy of the elites. Psalm 93, he established the world, it will never be moved. Psalm 96, the world is established, it will never be moved. He will judge, and the word judge in Hebrew is related to the word mishpat, justice. He will judge the peoples with equity. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. Psalm 97, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Because of your judgments, O God, let light shine for the righteous. Psalm 98, he has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Psalm 99, mighty king, lover of justice. So what I hope you can see is that in this liturgy that celebrates the divine ordering of creation, there is a semantic cluster of the words I talked about yesterday of mishpat and tzedakah and chesed and emeth. I don't think raham compassion is there, but they're all very good. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that we should be very suspicious of this liturgy of justice because I believe it is simply a recital of mindless mantras, the way every politician is for justice for the middle class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it occurred to me as kind of ironic in the use of such mantras that the people who care most about the flag and the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag tend to be the people who are least interested in liberty and justice for all. We love our mantras better than we love our practices. And I suggest that we should be suspicious of this liturgy on two counts. First of all, there is no specificity. They don't spell anything out. Uh, So it's just a headline. And the second reason I think we should be suspicious is that there's no human agency. It's just these moneyed, powered people expressing God uh, to guarantee justice. Thank you so much, Jesus, for doing it all. There is in the Jerusalem liturgy, as John Golden Gay said about Psalm 72 this morning, there is some hope that the king will do something about justice for the poor. And you can see that played out in the 
texts that we quote at Christmas from Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 about justice and righteousness and the increase of his government, uh, there will be no end and so on. But I don't think it amounted to very much. And if you look at King Solomon as a model, it's perfectly clear that King Solomon uh, didn't have much interest in justice because he taxed his regime into collapse. The text that feeds my suspicion is a text that's in 1 Samuel 8. You may know it. The NRSV translates, these will be the ways of the king. The NIV translates, this is what the king will do. But neither one of those is what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, this will be the king's mishpat. This will be the king's notion of justice. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and horsemen, that is the draft, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint some as commanders of thousands and some, this is income tax, to plow his fields and reap his harvest. He will take your daughters, I think that's trophy wives, to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to his entourage. <laughs> he will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers. He will take your slaves and the best of your cattle and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and, this is the last verse, you shall be his slaves. This is the king's mishpat. Justice read from above tends to be predatory. That strand of biblical justice, it seems to me, calls for a hermeneutic of suspicion because it is a confiscatory regime that transfers wealth, does this sound familiar? From common people to the urban elites who preside over the military economy. This will be the king's mishpat. So you can read a strand of the Bible as justice from above, and it is always about the maintenance of order. And in order to, need to maintain order, you may need more police, or you may need more armaments, or you may need a bigger defense budget. But it's all about maintaining the status quo so that the people of privilege can keep their privilege. Do you think I'm too hard on God's holy word? But there is in Psalm 99, one of these five Psalms, a segue to another kind of justice. In 99, 6, and 7, this is a little linkage text that's important to my argument. Verse 5 says, uh, worship the Lord at his footstool, which means his temple. But then the next verse says, Moses and Aaron, isn't that amazing? were among his priests, Samuel was among them. They cried to the Lord and he answered. He spoke to them in a pillar of cloud. They kept his decrees and the statutes that he gave them. So these two verses are a little bit odd in the cosmic liturgy of Jerusalem. They identify the great pre-monarchal leaders, Moses and Aaron and Samuel, they talk about the memory of how we groaned and cried out in slavery, and they affirm that God answered. And then there's a one-liner in there. He led us by the pillar of cloud. We can remember that we were in the wilderness. And then it ruminates about Mount Sinai of statutes and ordinances. Now, therefore, 
Exodus 19, if you will keep my, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the people. So this justice that is just gets a trace in Jerusalem, this justice is not order from above, but it is transformation from below. And what I want to suggest to you is that the Bible is essentially a contestation between these two notions of justice. And my experience of the practice of the church is that the church is an arena for contestation between these two practices of justice. You know, there is a, there is a joke in the, in the Episcopal church about uh, where is the dividing line in the church between Republicans and Democrats. And the answer is it's the communion rail. Some of us are on one side and the people on the other side. I don't know. <laughs> now, in order to understand transformative justice from below, I think we have to walk through the narrative of injustice that features Pharaoh. So I'm going to talk about Pharaoh's practice of injustice and the way it is disrupted by the gospel. We, uh, Pharaoh, I want to argue, is a paradigm and a metaphor for all predatory economies. There's a good reason we don't know Pharaoh's name, because if you've seen one Pharaoh, you've seen all Pharaohs, because all Pharaohs are predatory. So Pharaoh at the outset in Genesis 12 is the master of abundance. He's the place to go, Abraham knows, if you got a famine, Pharaoh will have food. But amazingly in Genesis 41, Pharaoh, the guy with the abundance, has a nightmare. You know, about seven lean cattle eating up seven fat cattle and all that. And Pharaoh's intelligence community could not interpret the dream because they knew Freud was coming and they knew if you wanted to interpret your dreams, you better get a Jew. <laughs> so Joseph, they clean him up from prison and uh, he says to Pharaoh, oh, my Lord, you've just had a dream about scarcity. I think it is correct to say that the people who have the most have the most anxiety about scarcity and need to get more. So I wonder if there is irony in this narrative. So the guy that had abundance, his narrative is about anxiety about scarcity. And he says to Joseph, what do you think I ought to do? And Joseph says, I think you ought to appoint a food czar. And Pharaoh says, uh, who do you think ought to be the food czar? And Joseph says, somebody really smart like me. So he becomes <laughs> the food czar. And then in Genesis 47, a text that we never read in church, uh, Joseph accumulates all this food for Pharaoh. And when the famine comes, the peasants come and he sells them food. It didn't occur to him to give them food. He sells them food. And when kind of the second year, he says, well, I don't know what to do. I don't have, you don't have any money. And they say, well, why don't you take our cattle? Why don't you take our means out of production? Why don't you put us out of business? So he takes their cattle. In the third year, they come for food. He said, well, you don't have any money. You don't have any cattle. I don't know what to do. And they say, why don't you take our land? And why don't you take our bodies? And why don't you make us our, your slaves? And if you read that long paragraph, by the end of the paragraph, he says, thank you so much for making us your slaves. We are so glad to be your slaves. It's called debt slavery. The main source of slavery in the ancient world, like 
massive incarceration is people who couldn't pay their debts. You see, when we read the book of Exodus and we start out with the children of Israel in slavery, we, we don't ask, how did they get in slavery? You just go two pages back in your Bible into Genesis and you can see how they got into slavery. They got into slavery because they could not resist the predatory practice of injustice. So Pharaoh's story is anxiety about scarcity, accumulation, and then that text says, so Pharaoh owned all the land, monopoly, And then if you turn the page to Exodus 1, the first paragraph says, Pharaoh treated the Hebrew slaves harshly. The narrative of scarcity, anxiety, accumulation, and monopoly will always end, what? In violence. Pharaoh's narrative will always end in violence. So that photograph of that man running from the fire of the police car that was up here this morning is about Pharaoh's story that ends in violence. And the responding violence of Pharaoh shows that the young man who was running away is dispensable. He is utterly dispensable because he is a non-productive member of the predatory economy. Do you think I overread? So here are three sweeping theses with which you do not have to agree. No, we're not going to vote on it. First, that the Old Testament is an act of imagination about a transformed alternative to the predatory regime of Pharaoh. So you can see that alternative imagination and resistance carried on in the Psalter and carried on in the prophets. The prophets are essentially poets that want to give us an artistic opportunity to notice that the predatory economy is unsustainable. We call that God's judgment. It's unsustainable. And when you get to prophetic promises, what you can see is that these artists are tracing out possible alternative ways in which society will be organized. Only artists can do that. These are not programs. They are not blueprints. But they are offers of images and metaphors and poetic parallelisms outside of Pharaoh's domain because Pharaoh never writes poetry. Pharaoh writes memos. And what's so difficult in the practice of ministry is that we are called essentially to be artists who commit artistic modes of reality in a culture of memos that is so impatient about artistry because you have to linger. So here's the second sweeping conclusion that the Jesus movement in the New Testament is an act of imagination about a transformative alternative to the predatory regime of Rome. Uh, Johnny talked about uh, Pax Romana Pax Romana was a violent regime. And here's the third sweeping thesis. The church in our time in the United States, and I think globally, but I won't take in that much territory, is an act of imagination about a transformative alternative 
to the predatory regime of military capitalism that reduces human life to dispensable commodities. So it's a kind of a typology. I propose that Pharaoh Rome and military capitalism are of the same ilk with a top-down notion of justice that wants to maintain the status quo and that the community of Israel and the community of the New Testament church and the community of the contemporary church have as their primal mission the staging of an alternative economy that practices neighborly justice. So I believe here's the big evangelical question. Pharaoh Rome, or what I call military capitalism, is always a totalizing act of imagination that controls uh, the courts, that controls the government, that controls the media, that controls the universities, that controls the technology, that controls most of our imagination, so that by and large, we think that is the whole world, and there really is nothing imaginable outside of it, because they got all the jobs. So I had to stop and define totalism. The question is, can that totalizing narrative of injustice be effectively interrupted? I think there are no easy answers to that. Or to put it another way, is there a vantage point from which to imagine life outside the totalizing regime of injustice? And I propose that the gospel is the news that the totalizing regime is being interrupted and I propose that every time the church meets, we meet to, enter, to commit an act of imagination that imagines how you would order a just society outside the practice of the predatory regime. You can take that globally, or you can take it quite locally. You could take it either way that the big story of the Bible is the story of interruption. So I want to read with you the Exodus narrative, which is a story of interruption. And I want to identify these maneuvers of interruption. First, you know all these. I just thought it was useful to put them in a row. That's what we do when we lecture from notes. The first act of interruption are these two midwives, Shifra and Puah, who fear God and who birth babies that Pharaoh does not want birthed. Now, it's simply extraordinary in the memory of Israel that we know the names of these two women. We do not know Pharaoh's name, but we treasure their uh, 10 minutes of fame. And the text says that they feared God. They did not fear Pharaoh. So they're very sly. They're very surreptitious. They only want to run risks in secrecy. But I propose that these two women embody what James C. Scott calls hidden transcripts. They're, they're living their life out of an alternative script. And were you to ask them, how'd you birth all those uh, illegal babies? And they'd say, well, I don't know. I guess the force 
is with us. <laughs> Second interruption, as you know, at the end of Exodus 2, Moses sees an Egyptian foreman beating up on a Hebrew slave, and he is so enraged that he just kills the Egyptian and becomes a fugitive from the law, some law. Now, that's really hard, and I am not the one to be heard saying uh, that interruptions of Pharaoh's predatory regime ought to be by an act of violence. But I thought Christina went pretty far down that road this morning when she showed, him, showed us making firebombs and lighting fires and so on. You cannot make nice with injustice. And it requires some kind of fierce, abrasive confrontation, which is really difficult for us Christians who have been nurtured in niceness. But of course, Moses would say, would he not, uh, I'm not the perpetrator of violence. The foreman who was beating up on the slave is the perpetrator of violence that evoked from me a necessary response. Third, at the very end of chapter two, is a third interruption. I think it's the interruption that we're witnessing now in Baltimore after the cunning of the women and after the abrasion of Moses, the text says, after a long time, Pharaoh died. We thought he never would. And you know what happens when a dictator dies. Everything comes unglued. It's like a school teacher leaving a junior high room. Everything comes unglued. And it says, and the Israelites groaned and cried out. They brought their pain to public speech. This is not the first day they hurt. They hurt for a long time, but the regime was a silencer. The regime said, I don't care how you feel, just don't make it public. And all the text says is that they cried out. It does not say they cried out to Yahweh. They just cried out. But it turns out that Yahweh is a magnet for the cries of injustice when they are brought to public speech. So that the text says their cry rose up to God and God heard and God saw and God knew and God remembered the book of Genesis, for God's sake. He's a text guy. <laughs> now, it's very strange the way the Exodus narrative is put together. So you got the report on Pharaoh's violence, and then you got the report on these surreptitious women, and then you've got uh, Moses' violence, and then you've got the cry. Only in chapter 3 does Yahweh make an appearance. Yahweh came late to the contest for justice in the burning bush, and Moses turned aside, and finally God enters the narrative on behalf of emancipatory justice. And God says in chapter 3, I have seen their misery, I have heard their cry, I know their suffering, I have come down, I will deliver, I will bring them out, I will bring them to a land flowing of milk and honey because the cry has come up to me and I see how the Egyptians oppress them. Now the way I read that is that the justice issue has to arise from below enough to get God's attention. I was taught in seminary when we studied Augustine that God takes all initiatives with prevenient grace. Well, it seems to me the slaves were saying, I don't think Augustine had it right. I don't know. 
So what happens in this exchange at the burning bush is that there is an alliance formed between the holy God and the victims of Pharaoh's injustice, and it is that alliance that is initiated from below that turns history to newness. And fifth, in chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, God says, I, 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 kind of a braggadocio. Verse 10, Yahweh says to Moses, you go to Pharaoh. I'm not going to Pharaoh. You go to Pharaoh. So the fifth step of interruption is the summoning and the authorization of human agents because restorative justice is human work. And you know then for some chapters that we call the plague, they have a contest who see who, to see who has power. And uh, if you, Barbara Green has shown us, if you read that carefully, what you can notice over the chapters is the narrative diminishment of Pharaoh in which Pharaoh is reduced to pleading and begging in his powerlessness. And finally, Pharaoh says to Moses in chapter 12, rise up, take your wives, take your children, take your herds, take your flocks, please go. And then he gets to say one other thing, last thing he gets to say, before you go, bless me. The narrative has Pharaoh recognize that the future belongs to the people who interrupt for the sake of justice. Even Pharaoh knows that. So it is no wonder that Miriam and the other women dance, dance, dance the dance of justice and freedom. And they say, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, free at last. That's in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, they have to go into the wilderness, which is the zone beyond Pharaoh's control where there are no viable life support systems. And by the time you get to the second verse of chapter 16, they say, let's go back. <laughs> Which is to say that Pharaoh has a huge grip on our imagination. And therefore, the drama of emancipation has to be performed and performed and performed because we keep retreating from that possibility. And in chapter 16, outside of Pharaoh's totalism, they were surprised to discover that the wilderness was a place of meat. So the quail came. George Ernest Wright said the quail came because they had flown across the Mediterranean and were just pooped and they just fell down and you picked them up. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. <laughs> it turned out that the wilderness was a place of bread. And when they saw it, they said, what is it? They wondered about Wonder Bread. A lot's lost in translation. <laughs> it turned out that it was a place of water. Strike the rock and you'll get water. Who knew? The wilderness beyond Pharaoh, as the liberated people of God always discover at the last minute, the wilderness is a place of meat and bread and water and viable life. And then two things happen in that chapter, the first thing that happens is that Moses warns them 
about accumulating bread. Don't act like Pharaoh. Don't store it up, because if you store it up, the wilderness will simply be a re-performance of Egypt. And then, as Johnny knows, it is astonishing that there they are in the wilderness with few provisions, and the text ends by God saying, oh, you can gather double bread on the sixth day because I want you even in the wilderness to keep Sabbath on the seventh day. Now, I propose that if we care about justice, in most of the congregations that I know, the task is to help people see that justice for the sake of order imposed from above has to be contradicted by transformative justice that arises from below. You can see a map of this very easily at the end of Luke 19, where Luke reports that the chief leaders, while he was teaching in the temple every day, the chief leaders sought for ways to kill him because they knew he was a threat to their monopoly but they couldn't do anything with him because the people were spellbound. So I propose that this contest between predatory injustice and emancipatory justice that is marked by abundance is a contest that runs all through the Bible and that it is a contest in our own time in which we have intentionally to participate. So I judge that the role of Pharaoh is played in our society by corporate capitalism propelled by market ideology inured to individualism sustained by a strong military and legitimated by patriotic exceptionalism. I worked really hard on that sentence. <laughs> so I'm going to read it to you again. Totalism in our society is played by corporate capitalism propelled by market ideology inured to individualism sustained by a strong military legitimated by patriotic exceptionalism. And that whole thing is kept hidden. That whole thing is deliberately kept unacknowledged. So the critical task of pastoral ministry, I believe, is to connect the dots enough so that people are to identify the are able to identify the power map in which God has placed us and that contemporary totalism wants us to believe that there are no alternatives so Gary Haugen in this stunning expose yesterday finished by saying it doesn't have to stay that way it can be changed. It can be changed by people who are evangelical interrupters. In the book of Exodus, the interrupting community is translated a, in chapter Exodus 12, a mixed multitude. They weren't Jews yet. They were just a riffraff bunch of people who thought they couldn't bear the predatory economy anymore. And I think maybe mixed multitude might be translated undisciplined rabble without credential or identity, a mixed 
multitude who refuse and deny and doubt the totalizing claims of the dominant regime. So this contest is always again being re-performed. And if you think about it this way, you can see that this contest is being re-performed in the life of Jesus and in the book of Acts. It is being re-performed by the apostolic community. Now, I'm over my time. I want to take two minutes yet. So what I did was to pull us back from Zion to Sinai. And now I want to ask the question, is it possible for people like us who prefer Zion to be engaged with the Sinai tradition, which is more radical? And the test case that I want to cite There are more, but I want to cite Jeremiah 22, in which King Josiah, king in Jerusalem, is celebrated as a practitioner of Sinai justice. And it says about Josiah, he intervened on behalf of, of the poor and the needy, and it was well with him. And then you get this haunting line where God says about Josiah practicing justice for the poor and needy, is this not to know me? It does not say if you know me, you'll do justice. It does not say if you do justice, you'll get to know me. He says that doing justice is knowing God. It ought to give us chill bumps. You're listening to Fuller Curated. Thank you, Dr. Brueggemann, for such a rich presentation. I was hoping there was sort of a palate cleanser before I got up here. And then I thought, maybe I am the palate cleanser. (laughs) If you ask a Christian clinical psychologist if they read anyone writing about the Old Testament, there is a 90% chance they will say Walter Brueggemann. Now, as a behavioral scientist, I must confess that that's a completely unscientific statement. But since 34% of all statistics are made up anyway, I thought it was okay to say But I think it's true, and it's a great honor to share as part of this conference. And I understand my invitation to share as an opportunity to interact with Dr. Brueggemann's work from my own vocational location as a Christian psychologist, specifically related to the issue of justice. So this is what I hope to do in my time today. And I'm going to try to master this thing. As a clinical psychologist, it could be said that I work in the realm of secrets, People come to me and confess things they may have never told anyone, things that have happened to them, feelings they have about themselves, thoughts and feelings they have about others, and even things they have done to others or have not done. The therapist's office may be the new confessional booth with psychotherapists serving, in the words of Sigmund Freud, as secular pastors. As a Christian psychologist and a professor that trains Christian psychologists, I have found deep resonance with Dr. Brueggemann's work, especially around the Psalms and the prophetic imagination. And recently, his 2014 book, From Whom No Secrets Are Hid, Introducing the Psalms, captured my imagination. Now, what you may not be able to notice because it's quite small up there is that this book is actually edited by my little brother, with whom, by the way, I have no sibling rivalry at all. And while Dr. Brueggemann's work in this book is stellar as usual, I do have to say that my little brother wrote a pretty good introduction. He's an Old Testament professor at Emory, by the way. 
Now, again, as I mentioned, there is no sibling rivalry between us, but I did introduce him to several of the items that he used in the introduction. With no credit given to me, thank you very much. So I thought it only fair that I would riff off some of the ideas he and Dr. Brueggemann present in that book. The title of the book comes from the opening line of the Eucharist prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. As my little brother points out, let's just call him LB from here on out. <laughs> They're still awake, Dr. Brueggemann. Uh, as he points out, the phrase echoes an old psychological adage, we're only as sick as our secrets. And what becomes clear in much of Dr. Brueggemann's work is that he too believes this. As he writes, and I'm having trouble advancing here, okay, we want to go one more. Oh, not, no, back one more, sorry. Um, as he writes, um, the Psalter as a whole is an articulation of all the secrets of the human heart and the human community, all voiced out loud in speech and in song to God amidst the community. We all have secrets. Even our communities and even our nations have secrets. And these secrets fight not to be told, even as maybe they want to be told. And maybe there's actually something therapeutic about telling secrets. To tell a secret is to disclose what has been hidden, to confess. And these exist for our healing, for the healing of the world. Now, some of you may be familiar with Post Secrets, a website and now a series of books in which the founder, Frank Warren, invited people to send him anonymous postcards with secrets written on them. Since 2004, he has collected over 500,000 postcards. These cards are often beautifully and at times uncomfortably decorated in ways that match the secrets. And telling one's secret has apparently struck a chord as millions have viewed the post-secret website or follow them on Twitter and Instagram. The secrets capture multiple kinds of themes. Some secrets are about personal painful events that have had a profound impact on the person. This one reads... I overheard my dad tell my mom, or I overheard my dad tell my mom that I was the main stressor that caused their separation. In small letters, it says, I don't deserve love. Some secrets are about how individually shamefully view themselves and subsequently how they live in the world. This one says, if something is hard, I give up and have a snack. Some secrets are bittersweet about how time has changed a person's perspective. This one says, the hands I was afraid of when I was a kid now are just part of a frail, lonely, sad man. Many secrets are about faith and religion. This one's hard to read. It says, I want to go back to believing in everything and knowing nothing at all. I wonder if that's a seminarian secret at times. Some secrets are about how individuals have treated others. This one says, I give decaf to customers who are rude to me. But perhaps this next slide captures some of the power of telling secrets. It says, after reading Post Secret, I don't look at anybody the same. What is it about telling secrets, confessions, if you will, that's so powerful? Well, telling and hearing secrets helps us feel less alone. That's not right. <clears throat> uh, stay with me. <laughs> Irving Alone, the great group and existential psychologist, has demonstrated that one of the curative factors of group therapy is what he calls a universalizing effect. When you share your secret, I don't feel so alone, so different, so weird. A sense of community can actually be formed, and perhaps this is what is behind the 12 steps uh, uh, in, in AA. Telling secrets can change others and us. On the very practical side, post-secrets has become very involved in suicide prevention. For many of the postcards you can imagine are about depression, anxiety, despair, and suicide. 
On the anecdotal side, the founder of Post Secrets has numerous stories in which individuals have made decisions to change themselves after reading other people's secrets. Or alternatively, after telling their personal secret, the person decided they just couldn't live that way anymore. There's a sense that public confession can lead to encouragement, empowerment, and change. And telling secrets has the real benefit of physical and mental health. In a writing paradigm developed by James Pennebaker, individuals were asked to self-disclose in written form about a stressful or traumatic event with as much emotion and feeling as they could uh, over several sessions, with each session being at least 20 minutes in length. Now, they did this subject with a control group. People wrote, people didn't write. They did it within subjects design where they look at people over time. And it's been replicated over and over again in a variety of very interesting ways. And what they find, found out is that this research has demonstrated that written disclosure about stressful or traumatic events improves one's psychological health. For example, we find decreases in depression, anxiety, anger, and distress, as well as increases in one's subjective sense of well-being. Disclosure improves physical health. It decreases one's physical health symptom complaints, ratings of pain, disability ratings, and causes decreases in uh, visits to the doctor's office. Um, it actually also improves immune functioning measured at the cellular level. In my own graduate research, we found similar results for verbal disclosure with chronically stressed groups. Now, theories as to why self-disclosure works includes improvements in social support, post-disclosure, or that disclosure gives a person an opportunity to rethink their traumas and stressors, leading to new and healthy meaning-making, or that the actual act of disclosure helps people feel less afraid of the issue or less ashamed. Now, these are all consistent with the experience of being in psychotherapy. And what we do know is that inhibiting emotions leads to psychological distress. So perhaps self-disclosure is the opposite of inhibition, leading to decreases in stress and better psychological and emotional health. It may actually take work to keep a secret. Maybe that's because, again, all secrets want to be known. So sharing secrets, self-disclosure, confession is good for us. But that doesn't mean it's easy or painless. Telling secrets is hard. When talking about the benefits of disclosure, Pennebaker speaks of short-term pain for long-term gain. But as Dr. Brueggemann reminds us in his work, confession in the biblical witness is not just an act of individualism. It's not just for ourselves, nor can it be reduced to simple psychological or therapeutic expression. Consider James's admonition. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Turn to your neighbor. No. <laughs> or consider these disturbing words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A man or woman who confesses his or her sin in the presence of a brother or sister knows that he or she is no longer alone with herself she can experience the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a sister or brother, sin has to be brought into the light. Or to quote Dr. Brueggemann, deep secrets are shared via the worshiping church as a, quote, voicing that is indispensable for the social and economic health of the body of faith and the body of politic, or the body politic. Telling secrets, I believe, confession is somehow about justice. It's about our healing, but ultimately for the healing of the world. Dr. Brueggemann has taught us that we, like the Israelites, find ourselves in bondage to the empire all around us, living under the power of what he calls the royal consciousness. This is a consciousness marked by triumphalism and oppression. The empire shapes our consciousness and defines reality for us. It wants to, to convince us that might makes right and that it's all business as usual. There's nothing wrong here. There's nothing to see. Put down your cell phones and recording devices. Don't you know we're just trying to keep you safe? 
This is the royal consciousness. And he creates a kind of numbing, a kind of numbing, a kind of numbing, (laughs) marked by affluence, oppressive social policy, and static religion. And subsequently, we are lulled by affluence to the point that we can't notice our own pain. We numb it with food, sex, drugs, or retail therapy. We can't hear the cries of the marginal anymore. We hear them as troublemakers, looters, not people in real pain striking out wildly like a man punching in the dark an enemy he can't see. And we can't be challenged by a truly free God. Instead, we domesticate God and perhaps baptize him in the river of nationalism. So the task of the prophetic imagination is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. And this brings us back to telling secrets, disclosure, confession, and truth-telling. Dr. Brueggemann has helped us see that truth-telling is subversive obedience. It's a great term. Truth-telling is what breaks the numbness caused by the royal consciousness. It is what helps us to know that things are not all right in Egypt or under Solomon's rule or in the United States of America or around the globe. Dr. Brueggemann tells us that the proper idiom for cutting through the royal numbness and denial is the language of grief. It is the sound of complaint, lament, and anguish of people under oppression that rises to the ears of God. God hears his people in Exodus 3 and in all times, and God says, I've seen, I've heard, I've come. Great verbs. They're there. Look them up. Often it is in the disclosing of a secret, a disclosure or what we might call confession. I think that is the first sign of anguish and a sign that not is all right with the world. And in these confessions regarding things that have been done to me, uh, things that we have done to others, and the secrets we even harbor about God, I believe we begin to dismantle the numbness of the royal consciousness. And maybe, just maybe, we start to shine a little light, a little light into some very dark and numb places. And maybe... In doing so, God can begin to spark our imaginations to envision an alternative community, an alternative kingdom, and maybe a world where we can join with the psalmist in saying, when I kept quiet, my bones wore out. I was groaning all day long, every day, every night, because your hand was heavy upon me. My energy was sapped as if in a summer drought. So I admitted my sin to you. I didn't conceal my guilt. I'll confess my sins to the Lord is what I said then you remove the guilt of my sin. That's why all the faithful should pray to you during troubled times so that a great flood of water won't reach them. You are my secret hideout. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of rescue. So the therapy room may have become the new confessional booth and therapists in some way may be serving as secular pastors And if so, this is probably because we create space for people to speak their truths, to share their secrets, to confess what has been done to them, what they have done to others, to lament, to grieve, to cry out in anguish, to say that all is not right with the world. But I believe that as important as therapy can be to some people, I'm in that business, so obviously I want to hold on to it, that as a Christian, It is ultimately the work of the church to create this kind of space for truth-telling and confession as subversive obedience. And these confessions are not just about the individuals in the church, but secrets that the church has kept. We have secrets to tell about what we have done and about what we have left undone. We have confessions about how we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so we are gonna invite you to join us in a time of corporate confession and prayer. To confess secrets we have harbored about ourselves, secrets we have harbored about our neighbors, and even secrets about our God. I'll lead the prayer where it says leader and ask you to join me where it says congregation. There'll be a musical response after each confessional section 
And at the end, I will actually pray a part of a prayer that Dr. Brueggemann wrote. So please join us in prayer, and we'll begin by hearing the musical confession. You have been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio.